Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash XPV. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated. Hello, I'm Sarah Hurwitz from the University of California, Los Angeles in California, United States. Welcome to this activity on drug-induced interstitial lung disease in patients who receive HER2-targeted therapies. Joining me in this discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, Sarah Tolaney from Boston, Massachusetts, and Javier Cortez from Madrid, Spain. So happy to have you both here. Let's jump right into it. Uh, ILD, interstitial lung disease, has become a very important side effect of therapies that has been described in patients treated with multiple different types of cancer therapies, but most notably for antibody drug conjugates targeting HER2. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about the mechanisms of action of ADC-induced interstitial lung disease and what the theories are sort of supporting how this actually occurs? That's a great question. I think one we don't completely know the answer to because what we do know is that some of these antibody drug conjugates can cause inflammation in the lungs. We do think this may in part be due to the payload that's attached to the antibody drug conjugate, where that direct payload may be part of the reason we get this inflammatory reaction within the lung. So there can sometimes be free payload that can be taken up, uh, for example, within the alveoli that can result in inflammatory processes. There could also be the fact that there can be some target sometimes on lung tissue that can result in binding of the ADC and therefore release of the payload within the lung. The other thing is you can potentially get um, take up by macrophages, for example, of the ADC and then therefore, uh, again, payload release. And so it's not really clear which of these various mechanisms can be driving this inflammatory reaction. Again, we're not entirely sure, uh, but it does seem to be that a lot of these payloads may be uh, part of the, the mechanism of this reaction. Thank you. That was um, detailed, and I think uh, we're all very excited to see studies that are diving deeper into this issue and the pathophysiology of the development of ILD so that maybe we can develop um, preventive therapeutics. What do we know about the rates of ILD reported with the various HER2-targeted ADCs like trastuzumab emtansine, TDXD, and trastuzumab duocarmazine? What in general has been reported so far, Sarah? You know, TDM1 uh, or trastuzumab emtansine was really our first ADC in breast cancer, and rates of interstitial lung disease with that drug are really, really low. So it wasn't something we were seeing very much. It's usually on the order of less than 1% of cases that are getting um, interstitial lung disease. So it's not a common toxicity. Whereas when we did get approval of TDXD, we did see that rates of ILD are significantly higher. So about 10 to 15% of patients getting TDXD will experience um, some grade of interstitial lung disease. So certainly a, a higher uh, incidence. Trastuzumab duocarmosine, which is certainly not yet approved, but we have seen data from this uh, agent, which does look uh, interesting, is also associated with um, some 
ILD rate. So a little under 10% of patients do get some ILD. It's interesting because the payloads to each of these ADCs is a little different, right? So we know with TDM1, for example, we're delivering an antimicrotubule agent with DM1, whereas with trastuzumab-durexstecan, we're delivering a TOPA-1 payload, the durexstecan payload, and then with trastuzumab-duocarmazine, the payload's an alkylating agent. So, you know, you see that even with the alkylator, you are getting some ILD um, as with this TOPA-1 inhibitor, but much less so with the TDM-1. And I think that goes to show that we don't completely understand um, how this ILD is truly developing. Yes, thank you for that review. And now I'd like to turn to Javier. Javier, you co-led the Destiny Breast 03 clinical trial, which provided us a lot of data about TDXD in HER2-positive breast cancer and some of that important data related to the rates of ILD in this particular clinical trial. Can you review for us what was observed in this study, uh, which evaluated TDXD and compared it to TDM1 in terms of rates of all-grade ILD as well as severe um, ILD, and whether or not there are any deaths observed on this clinical trial? Sure, Sara. So thanks very much for asking me this, this question. I think that we were all expecting after having the results from Destiny Breast 01 and having the important ILD nominated events we observed. And we learned with great, again, expectation, the data coming from Destiny Breast 03. And at the first report that was at ESMO a couple of years ago, we observed that all grades were reporting 10.5% of patients who received TDSD compared with 1.9% of patients who received TDM1. These data were updated last year at uh, San Antonio by, by you, and it was very interesting to observe that the all grades were higher, 15.2% with TDSD and 3.1% with TDM1. But what was great news is that no grade 4 nor grade 5 events were reported. And only two patients, 0.8% of the total population treated with TDSD, did have grade 3. So the great majority did have grade 1, 4.3%, and grade 2, over 10%. So I think that in general, uh, important adverse event, but the great, great, great majority only being grade 1 or grade 2. Thank you so much, Javier. That was a great summary. Now let's turn a little bit to the important topic of symptom identification and how we investigate patients who are suspected of having ILD. Sarah, can you take us through some of the most common signs and symptoms of ILD or pneumonitis? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the challenges is that it's a bit nonspecific. Um, so patients can get upper respiratory symptoms. So oftentimes, um, Sometimes you get people coming in with a dry cough, for example, mild shortness of breath. There are sometimes you can get with really severe inflammatory reactions, even some low-grade fever. Um, but this is what makes it a bit confusing is because certainly, you know, upper respiratory infections can also cause uh, similar symptoms. Uh, but again, we do need to warn our patients about these potential risks. Are there any patients uh, that you are really concerned about their development of ILD from the outset when you're just beginning them on therapy? Um, for example, patients with lung metastases, is that a risk factor? Are there comorbidities that make you more concerned ILD may occur, Sarah? 
Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I wish we had a good predictor for who's going to develop ILD. It would certainly uh, make it a little easier to be able to figure out who needs more intensive monitoring versus someone else. But the truth is we don't have great predictors. There are some in initial data looking at a large meta-analysis from the very first patients treated with TDXD. And initially, some of the risk factors that came out was potentially being of Asian descent, um, having um, renal insufficiency, um, and having higher doses of TDXD. And those were certainly some factors that did seem to be associated with higher rates uh, of ILD. But the truth is we are now starting all at uh, a lower dose than the, the dose that was uh, found to be more associated with ILD. And um, you know, being of Asian descent isn't quite clear if it's a, a consistent risk factor. And, and I think the renal insufficiency, again, uh, may be associated. But having lung metastases, for example, is not a risk factor for developing ILD. And I think that's a really important message because I think there's sometimes as physicians, we get a little nervous, um, certainly if we see that there's a lot of lung metastases and we think, oh, well, what if this person gets ILD, you know, their pulmonary reserve certainly, you know, could be a bit lower, but that in itself is not a risk factor for developing ILD. And so therefore is not a contraindication to giving TDXD. Um, I think the main thing to be thinking of as a contraindication is if someone has a history of drug-induced pneumonitis, those patients were excluded from the trials that did study TDXD, and so that is a, a clear contraindication. I will say that's sometimes challenging because sometimes some of our patients have experienced drug-induced pneumonitis but then their lungs are totally normal again. And it makes you wonder, would they actually be okay to get TDXD? Again, those patients were excluded, but you know, sometimes we do have to make clinical decisions um, if they have to totally normal lung function. It's not clear to me that that's necessarily a predictor that they're gonna get TDXD-induced ILD. And again, one of the controversial areas that we're currently having to deal with. Those are such outstanding points. Thank you for that. And I, I think, you know, just a really important nugget there is, is that moderate renal insufficiency should give you pause um, and, and uh, be very careful with treating patients with TDXD and underlying pulmonary fibrosis or uh, interstitial lung disease that's not even drug related was also an exclusionary factor. So you would proceed with caution in those patients. Turning to you again, Javier, can you go through some of the um, workup that you would do for a patient whom you suspect ILD developing? Like what would be your first um, approach uh, in working it up and making the diagnosis? Well, I think that uh, first of all, uh, Sarah, and I would like to, to, to say again, and, and, and this is something very important, that we have to work into multidisciplinary teams. For me, this is clearly key. We are not alone here. This is not only an adverse event that the oncologist has to take uh, or to take care about, but also the radiologists, the nurses, very important, sometimes the pulmonologists, pulmonologists and, and many others. So again, this is a complete multidisciplinary team adverse event. So I think that, of course, we have to pay attention to the symptoms or the signs the patients might have. I would highlight the cough, the dyspnea, sometimes fever, and very, very important, the new or worsening respiratory symptoms. I think these are four key aspects of the ILD pneumonitis. We also, I think it is very important to monitor different uh, 
patient characteristics, for example, the renal impairment might be more frequent in this patient population, which will develop ILD pneumonitis. And afterwards, of course, we have to rule out, to exclude other causes of ILD pneumonitis. We should not forget that we have been living in the COVID-19 period pandemic, and many times this could produce very similar signs and symptoms. So we have to evaluate the, the patients very carefully, if possible with a high-resolution CT. Of course, always take a blood analysis with the, with the CBC and, if needed, to talk with our, with our colleagues, with a pulmonologist that might also play a very important role there. And afterwards, in my opinion, we should treat these patients as soon as possible. Well, I'd like to thank both Javier and Sarah for this wonderful conversation. I think uh, the take-home messages are that there are a variety of mechanisms of action that have been postulated uh, to explain the pathophysiology of ADC-related ILD. It is really important as clinicians at the outset to warn patients this can happen. With TDXD in particular, it's around 10 to 15% of patients who will experience ILD. Lower rates with TDM1 or trastuzumab duocarmazine, but one must always be aware and it's important for us to um, be careful with patient selection, looking at their creatinine, their renal function, and prior history of interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis when giving them an ADC that targets HER2. And prompt diagnosis and workup is critical in the first step of taking care of our patients who have signs of ILD. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Sarah Hurwitz from the University of California, Los Angeles in sunny California, United States. Welcome to this activity on drug-induced interstitial lung disease in patients who receive HER2-targeted therapies. Joining me in this discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, Sarah Tolaney from Boston, Massachusetts, and Javier Cortez from Madrid, Spain. Welcome to you both. I want to start us off with a case of a 54-year-old woman who presented to our hospital with dyspnea and fever. She originally uh, was diagnosed with early stage HER2-positive breast cancer. She had a recurrence after curative intent-based uh, aggressive therapy. Um, she actually had been treated for 11 years with multiple uh, lines of therapy targeting lung and lymph, lymph node metastases. Uh, most recently, she was placed on 11th line TDXD uh, for a goal of a therapeutic response as well as palliation of symptoms. When she presented to the hospital, she had a fever, um, her heart rate was quite high, although her blood pressure was preserved. Her respiratory rate was around 24, so a bit fast, and she was only saturating 84% on room air, and this went up to 92% when put on 4 liters by nasal cannula. 
She had a workup, including an infectious disease workup to rule out viral causes of pneumonia, and then went on to have a CT scan, which showed diffuse uh, ground glass opacities, especially in the upper lobes of both lungs. So with this case in mind, I want to turn to my colleagues and turn first to Dr. Tolaney. And could you take us through what you discuss or how do you discuss with your patients who are about to embark on treatment with a HER2-targeted ADC, um, what type of symptoms they may experience with particular uh, attention being paid to pulmonary symptoms and that risk of ILD? How do you discuss that with them? That's a good uh, question, Sarah, because I, I think it really is very important that when we start someone on TDXD that we are very clear about the potential risk of interstitial lung disease and warn them about what they could experience so that they can alert us right away if they have any of these symptoms. So, for example, it's really important to let them know that some of the symptoms of ILD could include things like low-grade fever, cough, shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, things like that can certainly come up. Um, and so they need to be aware that at the first onset of any of those kinds of symptoms to call, certainly this doesn't have to mean they have um, TDXD-induced uh, interstitial lung disease. You know, they could be getting a cold or um, getting an upper respiratory infection. But again, these are things I like to be alerted about right away. And, and I do make sure they're aware to, to call if they have any um, sorts of these respiratory symptoms. Yeah, that's really important. What do you tell them about um, the risk of like very severe ILD or risk of death from ILD? I mean, some patients come in just terrified of ILD. Um, and, and so how do you sort of temper that, that fear of this dreaded complication when it's serious with, you know, how you're going to monitor them? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, and I think that overall, what I do let people know is that while we can see interstitial lung disease in 10 to 15% of patients, the majority of it is milder interstitial lung disease, that it is really rare. Um, you know, it, it does vary by study, but it may be, you know, up to 2% or so of patients that could experience death from interstitial lung disease. But I will say we're getting better and better and rates of severe ILD, grade five ILD, for example, really have gone down a lot as we've gotten used to the drug and uh, figured out how to better uh, monitor and intervene um, with ILD. And so, you know, again, it is important to be transparent, but again, I think the rates of, you know, grade five ILD have been lower more recently. And, and I think that is a bit more reassuring to patients. Um, I do tell them though, that they are going to get monitored more frequently because Normally, I'm doing repeat imaging on a patient, you know, every nine to 12 weeks with most drugs. But with TDXD, I have been restaging most of my patients every six weeks, sometimes every nine weeks, depending on, on the individual, but and also whether insurance will pay for a scan that often, often is sometimes a limiting factor. Um, but, you know, in the destiny trials that looked at TDXD, they were getting scanned every six weeks with the idea being that maybe we could pick up mild ILD. So like a, even asymptomatic ILD just by um, getting scans more often, uh, maybe that will allow that to happen so that we avoid having more serious ILD develop. 
Yeah, those are great points. And I think, you know, the clinical monitoring of patients, you know, with the, not just with the first and second cycle, asking them about symptoms, but even 12, 14 cycles out, since sometimes ILD is diagnosed, you know, a year or, or longer after a patient has been receiving TDXD. Um, I'd like to turn now to Javier to take us through a more granular approach in how to diagnose ILD associated with ADCs. Can you take us through how, what are um, the first signs and then what's that next step that you take if a patient has a sign or symptom of ILD? How do you work it up? When do you bring in your experts to help you and how do you use imaging? I think that's a real, a, a real important question, Sarah. I think that, first of all, we have to know that TDXD and also many other agents, of course, might produce uh, ILD pneumonitis. So if, no, if we know that this is one of the most important, not one of the most frequent, but one of the most important adverse events, now we have to talk to our patients. And of course, it is very important to ask specific questions for the patients. What about having cough recently? Do you think this is a dry cough or is more productive? What about shortness of breath? Basically, when, we, when you do some physical examination, maybe when you will have maybe to, to take a shower or have you experienced new breathing events or respiratory problems? Also very, import, very important, have you had fever? Are you feeling like very tired, a lot of fatigue? Have you lost a little bit of weight? And if you had respiratory problems in the past, are they getting worse? So I think that this is not new, but we have to reinforce once again the importance of asking all these, these questions. And afterwards, once we think that maybe we have a patient with an ILD pneumonitis, we have to establish an algorithm to diagnose this event and here is very important once again the history of the of uh, and the physical examination of the patient the laboratory tests of course sometimes with the antigens to rule out different uh, infections don't forget the the COVID-19 pandemic of course very important the chest the high resolution uh, uh, CT of the chest very important to look at if we have for example some I don't know some uh, ground glass changes into the CT scan that might be probably suggesting that this could be an ILD nominated event. And of course, no, uh, uh, at the end, it's very important to have a differential diagnosis. We have to clearly differentiate between cancer progression, infective causes. We have to see if the patient received or not concomitant radiation therapy and why not to exclude less frequent uh, causes that could be produced also ILD pneumonitis. So TDXD, other antiviral conjugates might produce pneumonitis, but it's not the only cause. I think that we have to work all together in diagnosis uh, ILD pneumonitis as soon as possible. It is true that in the hospitals in general, in my hospital in particular, we do not have a specific path to give to the patient to diagnose this very early. But we, in, in the clinic, when we are in front of the patient, we clearly talk with the patient very, very clear about the symptoms, about the signs they might experience, and they will be able 
to talk with the nurses very early if this happens. I don't know if this could be a good opportunity when patients are with this type of treatments to have a nurse that maybe could, I don't know, give a call phone every month or every other month to be sure that they will not have any problems. But the real thing is that we do not have this implemented in the clinic right now. Thank you for that very clear analysis and algorithm, Dr. Cortez. I'm turning back to you now, Dr. Tulaney, to take us through some of the management guidelines. Um, this uh, management of ADC-related ILD is something that is evolving, but I think it takes a bit of reminding uh, of all of us that even with grade two ILD that fully recovers and resolves, one should not resume therapy with the ADC. So can you take us through sort of how do you manage grade one ILD versus grade two or greater? And can you resume with any of these grades if uh, it resolves? I do think this is really important because you put, as you alluded to, this is different than the way that we manage uh, pneumonitis, for example, from other drugs. With other drugs, we're pretty comfortable saying that even if you get symptomatic ILD, we can usually treat that, hold the drug, and then resume the drug when it gets better. We see this all the time with things like Everolimus and immunotherapy, we're used to it. But because with TDXD, there have been deaths that have been attributed to the interstitial lung disease, the management guidelines are a bit more conservative than we have been more accustomed to. And so that's why I do think this is really an important message that, you know, the guidelines suggest you are not to re-challenge a patient with TDXD if they develop symptomatic interstitial lung disease. They are to be discontinued from TDXD. Um, so you stop the drug. Um, and you treat them with steroids, usually, you know, depending on the patient, but usually it's about a mg per kg per day of, um, you know, prednisone equivalent um, that they're getting. Um, and, you know, you, you monitor them and eventually can uh, taper them off of that, but you are not to rechallenge them, which is hard because the drug works really, really well. And you could have a patient who's having a tremendous response that unfortunately develops symptomatic ILD, but you are not to rechallenge because again, we just don't know the safety of doing that. And more work does need to be done in this regard. But with grade one ILD, which is asymptomatic ILD, meaning you got a scan, you see some ground glass changes, but the patient does not have any symptoms. In that case, you do hold the drug and you treat, you can or can't treat them. It depends on, on your inclination. I will be honest, I tend to treat them anyway, even with asymptomatic ILD. And I give them a steroids, usually that 0.5 mg per kg per day. Um, and I usually give it three to four weeks and see if they improve. Um, and then once they're off steroids, uh, I do rechallenge. If it took you more than 28 days to get resolution, meaning to get a clean scan with no ground glass changes, then you need to dose modify when you restart. Whereas if it's less than 28 days, you can continue the same dose. I will say I've never gotten anyone to have a, a CT without ground glass changes in less than 28 days. So I've always had to dose reduce in my experience, but maybe there's someone lucky out there who can make CTs look better more quickly than I can. Thank you so much for taking us through that management approach. It's really helpful. I just want to turn real quickly to Javier. Javier, are you starting patients with grade one ILD on steroids from the outset, assuming that you've ruled out infectious causes of these findings like COVID? Yeah, so I think that it's very important to know 
what the guidelines say and afterwards what we do in the clinic. It's true that when we look at the guidelines, when we check the book and the, and the, and the journals, it is very clear about grade one pneumonitis. We should consider the use of not or not of corticosteroids at a dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per day of prednisolone or equivalent, this dose or even higher, and to stop treatment until this event is resolved completely. I want to be very honest. I think that in my case, at least in the clinical practice, I echo with uh, Sarah Tolaini said, I, I would agree. If I have a patient with pneumonitis, I always start with corticosteroid. It is true that the dose is different. If this is grade one, two or higher with grade one, I always start with a 0.5 milligram per kilogram a day of prednisolone, about 30 milligrams of prednisone. This is what I use usually. And if it is grade two, I go for higher doses. I stop treatment, of course, until I have grade zero a toxicity. It is true that in my clinical practice, this takes in the range of three to four weeks. And according, once again, to the guidelines, if the, the event is resolved in 28 days or lower, we might restart at the same dose. If this event is resolved in more than four weeks, 28 days, we should restart as a, at a reduced dose. So these are the guidelines and, and we have to, of course, follow the guidelines, but I think that afterwards the clinic is much more complex. So I want to be very honest. Sometimes I, I reduce the dose also, even if the, the, the resolution is in the first four weeks. Very unlikely to happen this, in my personal opinion, but if it happens, I would consider reduce the dose depending on the time, depending on the patient characteristics, depending also of the comorbidities and many other aspects. Thank you both for these incredible insights on the diagnosis and management of uh, HER2-targeted ADC-related ILD. It's been uh, really insightful. I think the take-home points from this topic include the importance of notifying our patients at the outset that this can occur and what signs and symptoms to be watching for, watching our patients closely, both clinically and with scans at a relatively close frequency rate, as was done in the clinical trials early detection and early management with cessation of therapy for grade two or greater ILD and holding of therapy with consideration for initiation of steroids, even for grade one ILD. Thank you so much. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.